Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Matthew Bruckner, Associate Professor at Howard University School of Law. I'm here to talk with the authors of a new book, The Ethical Algorithm by Oxford University Press. Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth, professors of computer science at Penn. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So excited that you guys have agreed to join. Uh, I've been trying to read more books. This is the first book I read this year. It's it's short. It's full of great examples. It uh, covers a lot of ground. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk with you all today about it. Um, in particular, I'd love to sort of talk about three things today. Uh, you, you cover a lot more in the book, um, but to talk about uh, issues related to sort of uh, privacy and fairness and sort of explainability of algorithmic decision making, um, starting in the order that uh, that you lay out in the book. So starting with privacy, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, the different sort of um, uh, concepts of privacy you discuss private you discussed in the book, sort of K-anonymity, differential privacy. What are these things? Uh, how do they work? Um, what makes uh, you know one type of privacy better or worse than another? Sure. And so we sort of think of this as a great case study for the general approach we advocate in the book, which is sort of a definitions first approach. That if there's a problem and you want to solve it, you know, the first step is to enunciate precisely and mathematically what exactly you think the problem is and what you want the solution to look like. And so when it comes to data privacy, for many years, people really didn't have definitions. They didn't bother specifying what they meant by, by privacy. And they sort of had this heuristic idea that, you know, privacy could be achieved by anonymization or de-identification. So the basic mm -hmm. idea was, you know, if you have a collection of medical records or something and you would like to share them with researchers so that they can learn things like that smoking is correlated with lung cancer, you could do this in a way that protected privacy by just scrubbing out from these records patient names and maybe things like social security numbers and other unique identifiers if you were careful. And what quickly became apparent is that that approach by itself just doesn't work because even though I might have removed any feature that by itself uniquely identifies you, combinations of features um, can pretty quickly fingerprint you. So the, mm -hmm. the first public example of this was, was in the mid nineties, uh, the state of Massachusetts released a anonymized collection of medical records that nevertheless contained demographic information about each patient, like zip code and gender um, and um, um, and age. And none of these are unique identifiers, but but the combination of the three of them can be. And what Latanya Sweeney did, she was a at the time PhD student at MIT, now she's a professor at Harvard, is she realized you could cross-reference this data set with the voter registration polls of Cambridge, Massachusetts, which also had um, you know age and, and zip code and gender, but but now connected with people's names, and she was able to figure out that that you could reattach um, the names, and, and she identified the medical record of Bill Weld, the governor at the time of Massachusetts. And so, you know, okay, this this sort of woke people up to the dangers of um, re-identification, and for a long time, people just tried to patch up what were seen as the flaws that were exploited in the last privacy attack. So K-anonymity was one of these attempts at patching up the problems with de-identification without really bothering to define what you meant by privacy. So the idea of K-anonymity was to say, okay, well, 
what Latanya Sweeney was able to do is she was able to combine multiple features in a way that uniquely identified people. And so why don't we just try to prevent that? So canonymity requires that um, if I release a data set, I should do things like but yeah, maybe instead of releasing exact ages of patients, I will I'll coarsen them. So I'll just say that this patient was between 60 and 70 years old. And I'll do that in such a way so that for any collection of features that I might um, know about somebody, for example, that you know they're a 67-year-old woman who lives in a particular zip code, that any of these collections of features had better not map onto a single record in my data set, but, but collections of records. Hmm. But, you know, it, it turns out for essentially the same reason, this doesn't work either. Um, you know, you can cross-reference these data sets with other things you know about patients to once again learn things about them. And maybe it's not so surprising in that this was an attempt at patching up a, a broken technique um, you know, with an eye towards preventing a very specific attack, but but since it didn't bother to specify what was meant by privacy, it's maybe not so surprising that someone more clever can come around the next day and and figure out how to how to um, break privacy. You know, with this band aid as well. And so the re the real breakthrough in this field, and this is what we spend a lot of the time talking about in the book, is this idea known as differential privacy, which was really the first attempt to enunciate what you might want out of a privacy definition. And the basic premise is this, it says, um, you know, imagine an idealized hypothetical world in which your data was never collected, right? So some, some data analysis was carried out, um, some data set was released, some machine learning algorithm was run. But the important thing is that in this idealized world, anything that was done was entirely independent of you because your data was, was never even collected. So in this idealized world, your privacy is protected, right? Your, your data had no influence at all on what was done. And what differential privacy asks for is that nobody should be able to tell substantially better than random guessing whether we are in the idealized world in which your privacy was perfectly protected or whether we were in the real world when your data was used. And and so the premise is, if, if nobody can tell whether we're in the idealized world or not, and you buy that your privacy was protected in the idealized world, then maybe your privacy was protected in the real world as well. Right. So, right. so the idea, right, you're promising to people that you can't sort of uh, reverse engineer from the uh, the data that's shared publicly any one person's, you know, data. Right. You can't sort of, you know, identify, you know, my... Uh, uh, medical records from a, a data set or my, uh, you know, uh, Netflix rating history, um, because, um, you just can't, uh, um, you can't tell from the data that's released publicly. Right. And it, and it goes beyond that, right? Like one of the problems with things like anonymity is they sort of implicitly assumed that the only privacy harm I needed to be worried about was re-identification, meaning like someone attaching my name to my entire record or something. Mm -hmm. But but differential privacy really promises that you can't learn anything at all about me that you couldn't have learned about me without my data. Okay. Can you talk a, a little bit about how uh, we achieve differential privacy um, and 
um, and then perhaps I'll ask was different, the difference between sort of this centralized and uh, local differential privacy, but just, you know, um, more generally, how, how, what is a method for producing sort of differentially private information or uh, data sets? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> just kind of following on what Aaron said at the beginning also about the importance of definitions, um, you know, just to be clear, the, the main topic of our book is really about algorithm design. It's about how if um, the algorithms that we use now violate social norms that we care about, like privacy, uh, how can we fix them? How can we design algorithms that are better behaved in the first place? Mm -hmm. And so once you're armed with a definition of privacy that you feel, let's say, is the right one or an appealing one, like differential privacy, um, then you can move on to the algorithm design problem, which is to say, um, how can we um, design algorithms that do useful things like machine learning and AI or just more general traditional statistical analyses, but with the promises of differential privacy? And this inevitably involves modifying um, the algorithms that we're used to, which generally will not automatically obey the definition of differential privacy for free from, from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of differential privacy in particular, the high level idea is that you add noise to data or you add noise to computations in a way that preserves things like aggregate statistics um, or the models that you would build in machine learning while while making promises of individual privacy. So, you know, perhaps one of the simplest examples is is just, you know, computing the average of a list of numbers. So, for instance, suppose in some large company, the company would like to, you know, perhaps even periodically release uh, the average salary across all 100,000 people that work for the firm. Mm -hmm. And it turns out if you just do this in the straightforward way, which is let's say every year, the firm on December 31st publishes the actual numerically precise average of everybody's salaries, this will not obey differential privacy. Um, but if what the company does instead is first computes the numerically precise average of everyone's salary, but then corrupts it by a little bit of noise, by which I mean, you know, just adding a random number to it that could be either positive or negative, that this will obey differential privacy. And the, the amount of noise that you would need to add to this particular statistic would depend on the number of people that work for the company. And generally, the more people there are in the data set, um, the less noise you need to add in order to still guarantee individual level privacy. And therefore, the, the estimates will be more accurate. And so this highlights another important feature of a definition like differential privacy, which is that it makes ex explicit the inevitable trade-off that one faces between the accuracy with which you release data or the results of computations and the amount of individual level privacy you're providing to people. Right. And I really like that you start in the book with uh, privacy and then move into fairness, because I think it really highlights that, you know, uh, this idea of differential privacy is, uh, you know, um, um, achievable uh, and, you know, uh, depending on how much um, noise you want, how much protection, how big, how large your sample is. Uh, whereas, uh, uh, we'll get to it in a minute, that, that uh, fairness requires, I think, um, as you said in the book, even more trade-offs. Um, um, 
And I just want to talk, though, a little bit more. Uh, you know, like I said, the book is um, uh, pithy and full of really great examples. And I'm curious. Sometimes I feel like uh, when I sort of write things that are uh, 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 a little bit shorter, sometimes I, I lose maybe a little bit of the nuance. And I was curious, um, are there so – I came away from this book thinking like, oh, differential privacy, it's, uh, it's terrific, right? This seems like a good way to uh, make use of sort of um, uh, individual – people's data while uh, protecting them and still making it still be uh, having data still be useful. And so I'm just curious though, are there sort of limitations to this approach? Uh, right now you talked about sort of the, um, the, the need for sort of larger and larger um, data sets. Uh, if you're the more noise you're introducing to still have, uh, you know, predictive value. Can you talk a little bit more about those sort of trade-offs between sort of, you know, I guess um, uh, number of data, uh, data points and the amount of noise uh, you want to introduce in order to sort of produce um, um, both sort of useful data and still protect people's privacy? Yeah, so there's there's two kinds of issues here. So the first is some tasks are just not compatible with the idea of differential privacy, even in principle. And those are tasks for which success or failure is measured according to you know, the data of particular individuals. So if I want to learn something specifically about you, then sort of by design, this is it's just not something that you can do subject to the protections of differential privacy. The kinds of things that are in principle compatible with differential privacy are what I would broadly describe as statistical tasks, tasks whose um, success or failure is measured with respect to an entire population of people. Okay, so these are things like statistical analysis. These are things like machine learning. Now, if there's a statistical task that you'd like to do, even if it is in principle compatible with differential privacy, um, one thing we try to emphasize in the book is that privacy is not going to come for free. And there are inevitably trade-offs involved, not just with differential privacy, but with any reasonable notion of privacy and the accuracy of, of the analysis that you're going to conduct. And there's two ways to think about these trade-offs. One is that if you have a particular sort of accuracy goal in mind, so if I want to learn some you know, predictive algorithm that's going to be able to look at you know, demographic or you know, demographic features of a, of a person, maybe their sort of uh, history of, of healthcare, um, and I want to predict their... Um, susceptibility to a disease, and I want that prediction to be, you know, accurate, at least, you know, 60% of the time, for example, then if I want to be able to do that with differential privacy, I will need likely more data than I would need to be able to do that without differential privacy. So one way the cost of privacy manifests itself is in the need for more data. And if I'm in a situation where I just cannot gather more data, right, like the data set is fixed and I have to do with it whatever I'm going to do with it, then the way the cost of privacy will manifest itself is that I will have to um, learn a model that has higher error. And these trade-offs are inevitable. Like somehow it's fundamental to privacy that um, I'm going to have to lose some, some sort of statistical precision. But the nice thing about differential privacy is it provides a metric in which to sort of reason about what this inevitable trade-off is going to be, right? So I, you know, 
differential privacy has a parameter, right? We described differential privacy as saying there's no way to tell substantially better than random guessing whether we're in the idealized world in which your data wasn't used at all or whether we're in the real world. But what does substantially mean? Well, substantially is something we can quantify. And differential privacy as a framework doesn't take any position on how we as a society, for example, should trade off statistical accuracy with this quantifiable metric of privacy. It provides us um, a language and a framework in which to talk about it and in which to think about these trade-offs. That's great. And I really like that aspect of really sort of uh, honing in on the trade-offs that need to be made. Um, and um, um, and again, this you know sets up to preview sort of a contrast between I think uh, sort of this fairness and accuracy trade off. Um, sorry, the uh, uh, the trade off between sort of privacy and accuracy versus uh, in the sort of fairness context that you talk about sort of these um, differential notions of um, fairness and how those also just compete with one another. Uh, but before we get there, I'd love to sort of talk a little bit more. So you, you talk about sort of like the various mechanisms by which you introduce this noise potentially into the data. Um, you know, one example is about sort of um, uh, just having uh, respondents in a survey sort of uh, flip a coin. Uh, and uh, if, you know, comes up heads, they report accurately, comes up tails, they report, uh, they essentially just make something up. Um, um, it's unclear whether they're speaking the truth or not. Um, uh, and then you, I think you described this as um, sort of local differential privacy, but you also talk about um, something like um, uh, centralized differential privacy. Um, and I was curious about this, uh, this difference, particularly uh, in an era where it seems like um, none of my data that's collected by anybody is um, sort of uh, safe, that um, I feel like um, I've got... Um, eight offers of credit monitoring because I, my data keeps, you know, it keeps being data breaches and each company promises will monitor my data to sort of make up for it. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the different methodologies, uh, different methods of introducing um, uh, or creating differentially private um, data sets and this difference in particular between sort of um, centralized and local differential privacy? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, the difference between those two is largely a matter of, who you actually trust. So, um, you know, in in the case of say, you know, the example I gave of computing the average of a bunch of salaries, right? Um, in that example, the hypothetical company is sort of already in possession of that data, right? They determine your salary. They have to know what your salary is already, um, you know, so that they can pay it to you every month. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're already hold a centralized party is already holding your data. Um, but you might want them when they're releasing um, these averages to do so in a differentially private manner so that the world doesn't learn what your specific salary is, okay? And so in that case, right, you have to go ahead and trust the company when they say, well, we're going to not release the ordinary numerically precise average, but we're going to release this noisy differentially private version, Okay. There are other circumstances in which you hold your data and can decide whether to opt in to some computation or not, and might only want to do so in a differentially private fashion. And, you know, this example you were giving of what is known as randomized response in the kind of social science literature from the 60s is one example, but perhaps a more compelling recent example 
um, is in recent versions of Apple's iOS, their um, operating system for iPhones and other devices. Um, so <clears throat> it turns out that if you've got a later model iPhone, uh, periodically your phone reports statistics on your app usage to the mothership in Cupertino, but in a differentially private fashion. So the scenario here would be, you know, I I use my iPhone, I, I maybe I you know use different apps, and maybe I view that as you know kind of private information that I don't want to share even with Apple. Apple, of course, and its developers are keenly interested in app usage statistics, so they know you know what's popular and what's not popular. Um, and so let's say, for instance, you know, I'm embarrassed by the fact that I still play many hours of Bejeweled every day on my phone. Um, and so I consider that to be, you know, embarrassing personal information. So what my phone actually does is it periodically like takes the actual usage statistics. You know, Michael played 17.2 hours of Bejeweled this week. He looked at the New York Times for an hour and 15 minutes, et cetera. And as in the case of the average salary, it adds noise, but now it's gonna add noise to my data specifically, and it's going to add a lot of noise. Let's say that it's gonna add numbers that are much larger in magnitude than the actual usage statistics itself. So even if I played 17.2 hours of Bejeweled, it might add a random number to that usage, which inflated it to 511 hours, or down even to a nonsensical value like, you know, minus 92 hours. Mm -hmm. So huge random offsets are added to each one of my app usage statistics. And so much so that, you know, even if we published to the world these noisy usage data for me, everybody would look at that and say like, well, we really can't learn anything about Michael's app usage from these statistics. Mm -hmm. But if you average together the noisy bejeweled usage statistics for 200 million iPhone users, the noise, because it's independent, basically cancels out and you still get a very accurate underlying est estimate of the underlying aggregate bejeweled activity without learning anything about any particular person's usage. And so the great thing about this is you not only get differential privacy, but I don't even have to trust Apple to kind of treat my data in a private way, because by the time it even leaves my phone, the noise has already been added. OK. And of course, you, like everything technological these days, we still have to trust Apple to have implemented this sort of local differential privacy in iOS. Mm -hmm. If we trust that or we can, you know, have it audited and look at the source code, et cetera, um, then we have these very strong, we have the normal guarantees of differential privacy, but we never even had to share our sensitive data with anyone in the first place. And I think, you know, the, the summary is that from a practical standpoint, there are certain types of computations that we know how to do in this stronger locally differential private fashion. And there are other types of computations that we know how to do in a differentially private way, but only with like a centralized party doing the computation and everybody having to trust them to send their data in the clear to that party. Great. Well, that's, um, I think 
that's a helpful uh, explanation. And um, I mean, I can't say that I, I in particular uh, have uh, great faith in uh, who I'm sharing my data with. But I also um, um, I'm also not uh, you know particularly sensitive. I'm still using Gmail and other um, apps, which uh, which I know they're sort of um, I, you know, collecting various bits of data. Although in the, in the uh, book you do suggest that Google's also I feel like Apple has a reputation for being um, more concerned about uh, individuals' data privacy, but um, Google, I think, certainly less so. But you do mention sort of uh, Google is also collecting certain data uh, in a diff- in a locally differentially locally differential private way. That's right. So Google was actually the first company to deploy this widely, but as perhaps will not surprise you, they didn't deploy it in their core services. So you know you're absolutely right that you know, your Android phone and, and Gmail are, are collecting lots of information about you in the clear. Um, what they did start collecting in a differentially private way was sort of debugging information from Chrome. Mm-hmm. So, so Google was a leader in deploying this technology widely, but it, it was um, not, or at least has not yet been in a way that it is sort of directly relevant to what you would view as their core services. And I, I would just add to that that Apple can afford to be more aggressive in its privacy stances and policies and practices because they remain largely a device company, whereas Google is entirely a data monetization company. And so, you know, stronger privacy practices encroaches on their core business more than those practices would for Apple. So just to be clear, I'm understanding the difference. It's because Google wants to sell or its partners uh, want to sell me as an individual particular things. And so they need more specific information about my preferences rather than sort of aggregate preferences about law professors who live in Washington, D.C. or you know, Just, just generally, right, even some more sim- simply, generally, Google is in the business of, you know, gathering very large, very diverse data sets and figuring out all kinds of services that monetize what they know about consumers. Apple sells devices, right? So it's not like data doesn't matter to Apple, but their core business is not really data. It is, you know, selling iPhones, iPads, computers, and watches. Right. So these trade-offs that are sort of inevitable when you want strong privacy protections are less painful to Apple in terms of their bottom line. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to shift a little bit now to um, uh, issues related to sort of fairness um, in, and maybe this may be more core to the book about, uh, right, because the uh, privacy issues, like, uh, as I understand them, are sort of more about the sort of data sets, whereas uh, uh, fairness are now sort of more about sort of restrictions on the um, the. Uh, machine learning models that uh, are being used. Um, and uh, so I'd like to talk just a little bit more um, uh, in part because a lot of the sort of legal literature uh, relating to sort of um, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence that I've read, sort of especially initially talked about um, um, uh, the sort of bias in data. And there was some talk about the idea that sort of, you know, that using algorithms would reduce human bias. Um, uh, But you talk about how sort of machine learning can sort of uh, exacerbate bias and discrimination. So can you talk a little bit about um, uh, just, you know, um, how, you know, how we sort of measure and detect uh, perhaps sort of uh, mitigate issues of sort of uh, bias and discrimination in sort of machine learning algorithms? 
Yeah. So, so a couple of comments here. So, you know, I might, the, the way I might put it is, it's, it's, you know, it's not that machine learning reduces or exacerbates human bias, but that in general, there's no reason to expect machine learning to result in anything we would call unbiased, mm -hmm. uh, especially in its vanilla classical form, because in its vanilla classical form, and this is a point we make frequently in the book, um, Machine learning is all about optimizing and optimizing usually for some performance metric like predictive accuracy, okay? So you have a bunch of historical data on loans that you've given and demographic properties of the, you know, the recipients of those loans, um, maybe their social media behavior, their credit history, et cetera. And you'd like to use this historical data in which you know whether each of these individuals paid back the loan you gave them or defaulted to build a model to predict on future applicants whether they will default or pay back. Mm -hmm. And so the very natural way of going about doing that is to say like, well, let's fit some kind of model to this historical data that makes the most accurate predictions on the historical data that it can. And then let's go deploy it in the field and hope it makes good decisions there. And in this process that I've just described, nowhere was any notion of fairness mentioned whatsoever. It was just go for predictive accuracy. And so in particular, if it happens to be that the most accurate, predictably accurate model um, exhibits racial discrimination, and what would I mean by racial discrimination? I might mean something very quantitative. Like if I look at the data, the rate of false rejections, by which I mean people who actually would have repaid their loan but were rejected by the model, if you know, if the rate of that event on black people is much higher than the rate of that on white people, then we could call this model racially discriminatory, right? Mm -hmm. And notice here a couple of things are going on. First of all, since you're learning a model from historical data and you know, real data is complicated. You'll never, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have false rejections and false acceptances. And here I've kind of implicitly identified the harm that we're worried about as being false rejections, a particular type of error. And I'm, the goal here is not to eradicate all error. That's generally impossible in machine learning. But we could ask that this particular type of error not fall disproportionately, let's say, in one racial group. And the first point I'm making here is that since I said nothing in my objective about equalizing the false rejection rates between two racial groups, I shouldn't expect it to happen. If in fact, you know, if the machine learning process can eke out, you know, one one hundredth of a percentage more accuracy at the expense of greatly imbalanced false rejection rates between blacks and whites, it will do so because that's the most predictively accurate model. Um, and so, you know, this is this is sort of what the problem is. And then, you know, as we do with privacy, once we identify what the problem is and suggest some definitions, then you can go about the algorithm design process and say, like, OK, if we don't want models that discriminate by race in the particular technical sense that I described, how could we alter our algorithms or the objective that those algorithms are pursuing in a way that um, eliminates or reduces that particular type of bias. 
And, and just to add to that a little bit, because you bring up what is the important point, which is that uh, you know people are biased too. This focus on algorithms, I think, um, highlights something that is different when we think about governing or regulating algorithms uh, compared to when we think about how we should regulate human beings making the same kinds of decisions. And it's that when we've got human beings making important decisions, we sort of have this belief that it should be sufficient that the human beings involved in the decision-making process should themselves be ethical, right? We, they shouldn't themselves harbor any kind of, you know, racial or gender bias, for example. And we, we sort of think, okay, if we have good people making the decisions, then good things will happen. Mm-hmm. One point we, we try to make is that it is not enough that the human beings uh, designing the algorithms, especially if these are algorithms derived through machine learning, themselves be ethical, right? Like it, it would be bad, of course, if the software engineers actually were racist, but it's not enough that the software engineers not be racist because most of the misbehavior that we see in the form of discrimination uh, in algorithmic decision-making processes are the unintended side effects of people following the standard uh, machine learning pipeline. So you know, it's not enough to have to, to make sure it's not enough to have ethics training and, and make sure that everyone involved in deploying the algorithms are themselves ethical. We actually need to understand um, better how to design algorithms that exhibit the behaviors that we want. Right. Well, that's where I also thought this was an interesting chapter, uh, especially as contrasted with the privacy chapter, because, uh, you know, at least as I understood it, you're suggesting that uh, um, there is maybe a fairly universalizable uh, understanding of privacy, whereas there's a multiple and I took it to be competing definitions of fairness. Uh, and by sort of specifying various definitions, you sort of highlight the need to trade them off. Um, but um, but is that right that there are, so you, in your example, Michael talked about uh, equalizing rates of false rejections. Um, but you also mentioned that we could try to equalize, uh, you know, rates of false positive uh, and uh, other um, uh, meanings of fairness. Um, and uh, can we um, uh, optimize fairness on, you know, uh, five different um I don't know what the right word is, uh, parameters all at the same time? Can we have equal rates of false rejections and equal rates of false positives and, and, and? Yeah, so a, a couple things here. So, um, yes, we already know, even though the study of algorithmic fairness is more nascent than that of differential privacy by maybe a decade or so, we, we already know that the study of fairness is going to be messier in the sense that we will always have to be entertaining multiple potentially competing or even conflicting definitions. So more on the mathematical side, you know, many definitions, most most widely used definitions of fairness are of the type that I describe. You first of all pick some group or attribute that you want to protect along. So you might be worried about racial discrimination or gender discrimination or age discrimination. Then you say, then you identify, well, what constitutes a harm? And maybe in lending, it's the rate of false rejections for loans. Um, You know, in in another setting, it might be the other type of error, for example. Um, And 
all of these definitions more or less have this form. You identify what group or groups you want to protect and what you want to protect them from. And then you basically say, I want to make sure that some statistic on that group isn't radically different than it is on the general population, for instance, or between the different subgroups like white loan applicants and black loan applicants. And it doesn't take much to see that if I start, since these these constraints are all really constraints on simple statistics of a learned model, it doesn't take much to see that you know every one of these constraints or fairness conditions is like another equation in a system of equations with a limited number of variables. And so, you know, those of your readers who remember a little bit of high school algebra will know that, you know, if I have too many equations in too few variables, there just may not be a solution anymore, period. And this kind of thing can actually happen with these fairness definitions. And this was only realized, even though it's a rather simple observation, it was really only made in the last few years or so. But empirically, it can be even, I think, worse than that in the sense that it, let's take this lending example. It really could be that your data tells you that the more fairness you ask for by race, the less fairness you must have by gender. So it could really be that under the same fairness definition, which is, let's say, equalization of false rejection rates in lending, that the demanding fairness by, by race means less fairness by gender and vice versa. And so these are, you know, these are hard quantitative trade-offs that really uh, there's no answer to other than managing, right? So stakeholders slash society slash regulators will have to at some point weigh in and say, these are the trade-offs that are acceptable and these are the ones that are not. And there won't be any easy answers here. I mean, you you know, what easy answer can there be? Do you want more discrimination by race and less by gender, or vice versa? Right, absolutely. I mean, our you know our current uh, fair lending laws require um, um, there to be you know, well, not to have these trade offs, and so. Um, um, and I guess, you know, the, one of the takeaways, I think, from their conversation, and maybe this is, maybe this is not right, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, um, um, that, you know, these machine learning algorithms, which are, um, being trained on past data and are going to sort of force these potential trade-offs between, um, you know, racial discrimination and sort of gender discrimination, uh, potentially suggests to me that, right, that this is, um, and maybe this is, uh, maybe obviously so, that, um, this is already what we have that um, that we are already discriminating against certain uh, certain groups uh, and uh, but the, the scary thing about this is I think what you're saying is instead of machine learning fixing these problems, it's just highlighting that these problems are perhaps intractable and or you know trade-offs that must be made. Yeah, I'll just make one quick comment and then I'll let Aaron jump in here. I mean, I, I do think that one of the you know consequences, but in my view merits, of the fact that we're starting to study these social norms in a quantitative scientific way with rigorous definitions and you know algorithmic measurement is that we might discover that our laws are actually asking for things that are unreasonable, impossible, or misguided, right? So Aaron talked about the fact that a bad definition of privacy is things like anonymity definitions. And unfortunately, you know, HIPAA, the the set of laws regarding kind of healthcare privacy and healthcare data, they bake in 
an anonymity definition. So, you know, they've taken a precise stand on what type of definition of privacy should be used, and they picked the wrong one. Similarly, you know, to the extent that lending laws in the United States try to get at some notion of racial fairness, they basically say, oh, just don't use race as an input to your models. And this is their attempt to get at racial fairness. But in particular, forbidding the use of race in the building of models will in no way reduce the problem of racial discrimination in lending. And we go into this in the book. And it may actually make it even worse. So once again, you have a body of law that's tried to be precise. It's well-intended. It's trying to be precise about a means to get at racial fairness in consumer lending. And they unfortunately got it wrong. Thank you. And can I, can I ask you to sort of expand on that just a little bit? Because I think that's a sort of a counterintuitive point for some people. Um, how does removing uh, sort of, um, you know, race or sort of uh, uh, data points associated with race, how does that potentially increase race, the right racial bias of uh, the sort of final, um, the final models? Good. Yeah, this is a good point, because I think it is a common initial reaction for people to say, well, you know, if I don't want my algorithm to have any racial bias or any gender bias, I just shouldn't give it information related to race or gender. And there's two points to be made here. The first is that this just doesn't work even on its own terms. And the second is that even worse, it can it can actually sometimes make the problem worse. So first, you know, that, that this doesn't work on its own terms, you know, sure, I can remove race from the data, but the whole point of machine learning and statistics more generally is that it is extremely good at imputing information that wasn't explicitly in the data. So for example, if you take out race, uh, but you have other features in there like zip code, I can come up with a very good predictor for race and my algorithm can implicitly um, use these predictions for race to make decisions. So just because you've removed race doesn't remove the ability of the algorithm to make decisions as a function of race, although it can um, make it sort of less transparent. But the second thing is that it can be that different demographic groups have different statistical properties. So for example, um, one thing that is sort of frequently discovered is that when you're reading recommendation letters for, say, faculty candidates, there tends to be gender bias in the sense that letters for female candidates will, um, you know, describe them more frequently using words like, you know, diligent and conscientious and uh, letters for um, male candidates will, you know, more frequently use, you know, words like genius and brilliant. Mm -hmm. And if you understand this phenomenon and you also get to see the gender of the applicants, then you can try to correct for it. You can say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I know that there's this bias, for example, that manifests itself in recommendation letters for female candidates, and this is a female candidate, so I'm going to read the letter in that context. Okay, so, so um, when you have these different, different statistical properties for predictors that differ by demographic group, and you know which applicants are members of which demographic group, you can sort of correct for this differential representation in the data. 
But if you don't know that, right, if you've forced the algorithm to not know that by removing that information from the data set, then it prevents the algorithm from doing this correction, which the algorithm will want to do if that will serve to improve accuracy. And so you can come up with simple examples. We have one in the book where removing this demographic information can actually make things, you know, concrete things like disparities between false positive rates worse when you when you then use an algorithm to solve for the you know most accurate model. I think that's that's terrific and a really excellent point. I mean, I, I you know I write uh, about um, fair lending some, and you know I think sort of one of the assumptions underlying uh, a lot of our fair lending laws is that racial animus is dictating. Um, uh, differential sort of lending rates. Uh, and so therefore we try to remove a lot of this data, right? A lot, you know, collecting data on race uh, is often not permitted. Uh, and, um, um, but if it's not, uh, you know, racial animus um, and we sort of remove this data from our, we don't collect this data, then, uh, you know, I take that you're saying that, uh, that, um, that we may end up with being able to, where we're going to be making, in some cases, at least making worse decisions because we don't have this data. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful point. And I think there's two risks. I mean, first, we might be making worse decisions. That's the major risk. But the second is that it might be hard to discover that fact, right? Like if we want to audit a model, if we want to discover that it has a much higher error rate on men than women or on black people than white people, well, the data we need to audit the model depends on the demographic information of the of the applicants that we were trying to protect, right? We have to be able to compute the false positive rate for women or for black people. And that's just, that's difficult to do if we don't have that information, if it was um, not collected because its collection was prohibited by law, for example. And is that, and, and I mean, I take it though that you're saying that the, uh, the algorithms are sort of using, you know, um, zip code and sort of other data points as proxies for race. And so you can't, and I, this is outside my uh, um, zone of knowledge for sure, uh, you can't sort of query the algorithm to try to figure out, uh, you know, does the algorithm think this person is white or black? Uh, or uh, you're just saying that since we don't have a sort of an objective data point, we actually just can't, uh, uh, we can't tell whether that, you know, so it may say, yes, I think this applicant is black, but we actually just don't know whether that's true or not. I mean, there's no sense in which the algorithm or more precisely model, quote unquote, knows whether something, someone is black or white or male or female, um, if if that's not one of the inputs to the model. The algorithm will just try to, you know, the, the model will, will just try to find correlations in the whatever input variables it's given with the output that it's trying to predict, like, is this person a good lending risk or not? Right. Gotcha. And if we remove those inputs, there won't be any explicit or even implicit way of looking inside of the black box, so to speak, and say, oh, the model has decided that this person is white or black or male or female. Right. Because it's not trying to. Decide, right. all all the, all, yeah. All of this is kind of in aid of our advocacy of, you know, even though there are many, many different types of potentially competing fairness definitions, we generally believe that the good ones. Um, rather than trying to get at fairness by constraining the inputs to a model, just instead explicitly constrain the output behavior that you want. So if you're worried about the false rejection rate in lending between black and white people being disparate, just forbid that behavior 
let the, let the model use any input it wants. Let it use your social media behavior to decide whether to give you a loan. But just make sure it doesn't do the thing that you want to forbid. And this is, in general, I think a much more operational definition of fairness and also avoids the harms that can come, the active harms that can come from, from trying to do it the other way. Mm -hmm. Just to echo a point we've made earlier, you know, trying to achieve fairness, say, by race, by just removing race attributes from the data, this is really, really analogous to trying to achieve privacy by removing names from the data in that, you know, it kind of sounds like maybe a sensible thing to do, but it avoids ever needing to enunciate what you actually meant by unfairness to begin with, right? So if, in fact, the thing that you meant by unfairness was that the model in the end, you know, had correlations between race and its error statistics, it made more errors on black people, then there's no reason to think that removing um, demographic information is going to make the thing you care about better, just as there's no reason to think that removing names is going to make the data more private if you haven't bothered to define what you mean by privacy. And so our approach here, and, and more generally the approach we advocate in the book, is that if you want to attack these problems in a, in a sensible way, first you should specify what are the behaviors you want the algorithm to have? What are the behaviors you want the algorithm to not have? This can be a sort of difficult philosophical process. You have to like actually make clear to yourself specifically what you meant by fairness. And that's a hard problem all on its own. But once you've done that, then you can try to achieve it. Then there's an algorithm design problem that you can tackle using all of the powerful tools of computer science. And, and not, to, not to get too philosophical on this point, but... Um, you know, needless to say, and as we admit in the book, people like us, i.e. computer scientists, AI, machine learning types, are far from the first people to have ever thought about things like privacy and fairness. Um, you know, certainly legal scholars have thought about these things long and hard, um, moral philosophers even longer, economists a fair amount. Um, but there's a special burden when you're when you want to be so precise in your definitions that you can actually encode them in a computer algorithm. And I think one of the things we're trying to get across in our book is that there are great benefits to being forced to go through that act of precision, because sometimes by being that precise, you, under, you uncover flaws in our intuitions about these topics that you weren't going to uncover in any other way, like why is anonymity a fundamentally broken notion of privacy and why is trying to get at fairness by forbidding the use of certain variables a fundamentally broken notion? No, I think it's one of the things I really liked about the book. It really made me think about a lot of these issues uh, in a different way. Uh, and um, yeah, I think I think you do a, a great job uh, explaining these, and particularly again through sort of you know easy. Um, there's lots of examples, lots of easy to understand examples, really making your points really, uh, really well. Um, you know, it it reads so easily. It makes me think, oh, I could write a book too. But I'm sure it's what a ton of work it is to make uh, to write a book uh, that sort of uh, reads so uh, so clearly and quickly, and um, you know, come up with all these examples. Um, Although it was fun, I you know I recommend writing a book. Yeah, we we, we enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're running out of time. I wanted to ask, though, uh, at least briefly, about uh, one of the issues you touch on only sort of towards the end of the book about sort of interpretability. Um, 
you know, I think especially a lot of the legal literature, we're, you know, we're less, uh, we're not computer scientists by and large, or there's a few counterexamples. Uh, and, you know, um, so there was, I think there was the sense, especially early, that um, that algorithms are these sort of black boxes, they're inscrutable, uh, they produce decisions we can't possibly understand, and particularly in the fair lending context, uh, where we require explanations for denials of credit, uh, for example, that um, that uh, any sort of lender, marketplace lender, fintech lender using uh, machine learning techniques would necessarily produce, um, be unable to produce these adverse action uh, letters. But you talk about in the book about um, how that uh, an algorithm that might never, that might be in sort of inscrutable uh, generally, um, the sort of, I guess maybe the mechanics of it, might nevertheless produce um, uh, specific decisions and individual um, uh, you know lending uh, decisions for example that that we can understand you know why the algorithm has said you know Matt Bruckner um, we're going to deny you credit um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, about that you know how these models allow us to explore counterfactuals what are the limits of, of these techniques so uh, machine learning models are certainly, inscrutable in ways that human beings are not but but the reverse is also true these are sort of two different things so you know the reason why you can explain to me why you made a decision that you did is because you know we're both human beings we we grew up um you know in a similar probably cultural environment and i can i I sort of have a, a theory of mind for you you can walk me through your decision-making process, whereas the same is not true for a neural network. You know, I, I can't really understand the process by which a neural network, which might be defined by, you know, like a vector of a million numbers, uh, is making its decisions. On the other hand, um, you as a human being are very good at post-hoc explanations in that you might explain to me why you made the decision you did, but you might have come up with that explanation after the fact, right? You might not even have been aware of why you were making the decision you did. And it's it's really hard to say, you know, how you would have acted in another circumstance. Whereas for a machine learning algorithm, you know, it's it's a black box, but we have direct access to it. So in principle, you can, you know, ask it, okay, you denied me a loan. What would you have done on this other applicant that looks identical to me, except with these features changed? And you can do experiments for a sort of machine learning black box and and just discover what it would have done in different counterfactual scenarios. So in that sense, it's easier to interrogate a machine learning algorithm. I think the way we talk about explainability in machine learning in the book is that it's obviously a very important thing. Uh, it's you know already mandated by law in various contexts, but it's one of these areas, maybe like privacy before the definition of differential privacy, like fairness before people tried to specify what they wanted, that is sort of in the pre-definitional stage. So there's lots of people trying to design explainable or interpretable machine learning methods, but we haven't seen a really sort of convincing definition of what explainability really means. And this, it would involve pinning down, I think, you know, explainable to whom, like what is the desired goal of an explanation? What, what are you supposed to be able to accomplish with an explanation? And so I think this is an important area, but 
but we're not going to see real progress of the sort that we've seen in fairness and machine learning until we can really specify more precisely what an explanation is, what we want out of an explanation in, in technical terms. And I think just to add briefly to that, one of the things we, we do say about this topic is, you know, we, we don't think that there are solid agreed upon definitions yet. And furthermore, it, it, it seems like because there's always implicitly an observer or recipient present, you know, just the notion of explanation sort of says like, well, who am I explaining this to? And that in particular, where machine learning is involved, the level of numeracy of that recipient might be relevant, right? You know, so some people can handle an abstraction like a model that is mapping a set of features about an individual to a prediction. And to other people, that's a very alien concept. And, you know, what would constitute a satisfying explanation to one of those might be very different than to the other. And so it also seems like a fair amount of behavioral research is needed here, just on what different types of groups of people can and cannot accept or understand as explanations for algorithmic decision-making. And there's a little bit of that going on in the research community now, but I would say it's very, very early days. Well, great, thank you. Um... All right. Well, I'm going to, um, you know, try to be respectful of your time and sort of end there. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you again to Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth. Uh, we've been talking about their uh, new book, The Ethical Algorithm by Oxford University Press. Um, so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
more.